excited to, uh, to look at this character, James, the Lord's brother. I want to open off with, uh, with a question. If I ask you this question, what is family? How would you define that term? We hear the terms brothers and sisters a lot, don't we? What do we think when we use the term brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so? Now, some of us may or may not be blessed with a, a spiritual, healthy, loving family, but all of us are blessed with family in Christ. This is the heavenly family, the, the divine family. A family which consists of the saints of God. And we need to cherish and to nourish this family, don't we? Especially, especially in, in difficult times, where there's trial or difficulty, where help is needed or required. What do we think about when we think about our, our Lord and our Master and his family? Where were they when he was going through his deepest trials. Now, I, I want you to turn with me to Psalm 69, if, if you're not already there, because the story and life of James, the Lord's brother, begins in Psalm 69. It's a messianic psalm. It's quoted in, in John chapter 2. But in verse 7, it says, because for thy sake I have borne reproach, shame hath covered my face. And we enter into the mind of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we keep reading, we learn a little bit about his family. Verse 8, I am become a stranger unto my brethren and an alien unto my mother's children. We might not initially think about that when we think of the Lord and his family, but in his mind, he was like a stranger, an alien, a foreigner to his brothers, to James, the Lord's brother. Now here's why. Verse 9 says, For the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. I'm consumed by the work of my father. Now, what's the house there in verse 9? It's quoted in John chapter 2, in the context where Jesus had wiped the temple clean. And he said, you've made my father's house a den of thieves. This was the temple. But he then later talks about the temple of his body. And ultimately, Christ was consumed with the work that God had given him to do, to save his people from their sins and to build a divine family. That's how Psalm 69 ends. Verse 35, For God will save Zion and will build the cities of Judah that they may dwell there and have it in possession. The seed also of his servant shall inherit it and they that love his name shall dwell therein. God wants to dwell in a people 
that have honored him, that have adopted spiritual thinking. But Christ, as he worked his way through his ministry leading up to his death, was separated from his natural brothers. Now, before we examine that in a little bit more detail, what's the background of James the Lord's brother? We know a little bit about, about his parents. We know of Joseph and of Mary. It says of Joseph, actually, that he was a just man in, in Matthew 1, verse 19. And the word just is the word dikaios. It's the same word used to describe Cornelius, the centurion. So you'll recall Cornelius, the centurion, in the story in Acts chapter 10, and it says of him that he was a just man and one that feared God and of good report among all the nations of the Jews. Now let's think about that for a second. Cornelius was a just man, a dikaios. Why? Well, he is one that feared God, and there was a good report among the Jews. You see, Cornelius was somebody that supported the Jews in their endeavors, allowed them to, to worship in the way that they did. And as a result, he was called a, a just man. There were two others called just, Zacharias and Elizabeth. It says in Luke 1 verse 6 that they were both righteous before God. And then notice the terms associated with them. They were righteous or just, dikaios, before God because they walked in all commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. So walking in the commandments and ordinances were ideas associated with being just or righteous. Now they had a son, John the Baptist. And guess what he was known for? Herod identifies John, it says in Mark 6 verse 20, as a just man and holy. So we have two parents dedicated to the law, and they raise up a child that was also known as just, just as they were. Now, if Joseph was also a just man, you would think that he would also raise up a child that was just. Turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, we're about to read of Mary, the, the handmaid of God the one whom the angel Gabriel said of her, Hail, thou art highly favored. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And, and in Luke 2, verse 21, and, and the few verses following, note the ideas associated with the law and keeping the law or the commandments and ordinances as Zacharias and Elizabeth had. So Luke chapter 2, verse 21. 
when eight days were accomplished for the circumcising of the child, his name was called Jesus, which was so named of the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were accomplished, they brought him to Jerusalem. Verse 23, as it is written in the law of the Lord, Every male that openeth the womb shall be called holy to the law, to, to the Lord. Verse 24, and to offer a sacrifice according to that which is said in the law of the Lord. Verse 27, and he came by the spirit, that is Simeon, into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law. So here was Mary. She too was a, a just woman. She was completely devoted to the law. These parents of James and our Lord Jesus Christ meticulously followed and kept every Sabbath and feast. They were holy in prayer, zealous in good works, purified according to the law. This is the family that Christ grew up in. And this is the family that James grew up in. Can you imagine the family life, the dinner table discussions that may have taken place, discussing the law of Moses, the Old Testament? They would have been great discussions, but as time went on, James would have recognized that Jesus was different. He was interpreting the law differently. And reports would have been coming in of the Lord. Your, your brother has swept the temple clean. Jesus, he, he eats with sinners and publicans. His disciples eat with unwashed hands. And they don't seem to follow the Sabbath customs as we understand them. And this separation is, is evident in Scripture. Turn with me to Mark chapter 6. Jesus is, is teaching in the synagogue in his own country, it says. He would have been near Nazareth. And it says in verse 3 of Mark chapter 6, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James? and Joses, and of Judah, and Simon, are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. And here were a group of people that were troubled by the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were troubled that he was teaching with such authority, but they were identifying with the family of the Lord. James, likely the oldest, after the Lord Jesus, because he's mentioned first here in, 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 of the list in verse 3. But there was this group offended at the Lord Jesus Christ. Who, who does he think he is? What status does he have to demand our attention? Isn't he from Nazareth? No one from Nazareth can teach us with such authority. And doubt arose about the veracity of his teaching. They took offense at his menial and, and humble birth. 
They were too proud to be taught by someone like the Lord Jesus. But Jesus responds this way, verse 4. He says to them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country, and among his own kin, and in his own house. And what that's saying is, is a prophet does have honor, but not in his own country, with his own kin, with his own house. And the word kin there, Jesus specifically uses and identifies these three terms. And the word kin is a relative, someone of the same race, someone, a relative through blood. Jesus says, those closest to him didn't honor him. He was despised by those who ought to love him. This is the place that Jesus grew up. And there was a great gulf between him and his natural brothers and sisters. We see this further in Matthew chapter 12. We see this gulf naturally and spiritually. Or literally and spiritually. Because in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is doing more teaching. And at the end of chapter 12, in verse 46, while he yet talked, Jesus is teaching. And while that is happening, it says, Behold, his mother and his brethren, James. It says, stood without, desiring to speak with him. They stood without. And surely that was literal, but also significant of the spiritual understanding that they had. They stood without spiritually as well. And his mother and his brethren wanted to speak with Jesus. Jesus, you're... You're causing commotion. You're teaching things which are, are contrary to what we've taught you. They wanted to speak with him while he was teaching the people. In verse 47, it says, Then one said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren stand without desiring to speak with thee. You can picture the scene. Luke, the Luke account, says there was a great crowd and his mother and his brethren couldn't get to him because of the press or, or the crowd. And it seems like it's a random person or someone other than the family that, that alerts Christ to the fact that his mother and his brethren were there. You, you can just picture it, the large crowd and somebody weaving their way through to get to the Lord Jesus Christ. And they shout out, Lord Jesus, your mother and your brother brothers stand without. And verse 47 highlights that again, doesn't it? They, it says, thy brethren stand without to speak with thee. And this is how Jesus responds, verse 48. Who are my mother? Who is my mother? And who are my brethren? 
And Jesus would have had to have stopped his teaching. And he would have seen on the outskirt of, of the crowds his mother and his brethren. And maybe it was that he made eye contact with them. But then it says, verse 49, he stretched forth his hand towards his disciples. He was looking elsewhere. He was looking at his disciples. Those that were willing to follow him and believe him. And he says, behold, my mother and my brethren. For whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus was identifying his whole family, but he was identifying his spiritual family because that is what mattered most. That was the most important to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Luke account says, for whosoever shall hear and do the will. There's an understanding that's required, a, a hearing that must take place, and then an active living of what I am saying. Jesus wasn't rejecting his family from becoming spiritual family, but it was a rejection on the basis that if they did not accept him, then they couldn't be true family. And you could just imagine how those words would have cut deep into the heart of James. These are words that he would never forget. We know that because he writes an epistle. And it's an epistle based on the principles of these words. But we haven't reached that point yet with James, because as time goes on, a greater and greater gap occurs. Christ would be treated like a stranger and an alien. Their thoughts were not aligned. Turn with me now to John chapter 7. John chapter 7 and verse 1. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewry or Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. This is the experience of our Lord Jesus Christ, living a life where so many wanted you killed. And so he wasn't walking, it says, in Jewry. Now, verse 2, the, the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. And verse 3, his, his brethren, James, says unto him, Depart hence and go into Judea, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world. And the brothers of Jesus were telling him to walk into the very jaws of those that wanted him dead. Go to Judea. Declare who you are, because we're not like you. 
it says verse 5 for neither did his brethren believe in him how sad that was and in the very moment where christ would need that family support he couldn't rely on them for perhaps they even wanted him dead themselves they were disrupting their way of life their worship their practices And this is Jesus' response. And consider the pronouns in his response. Jesus says to them, verse 6, My time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but me it hateth, because I testify of it that the works thereof are evil. Go ye up unto this feast. I go not up yet unto this feast, for my time is not yet full come. There was no harmony, no mutual fellowship, no sharing of understanding at this point in time. This is actually the last we hear of, of Christ's brethren, specifically James, in the record before Christ would go through his greatest trial. And it's fitting because they're not part of the life of Christ. As he went through these deep grievances, he had to lean on his spiritual family, not his natural family. He had to lean on his disciples, but even they would falter. And ultimately, he had to rely on his heavenly father. In Luke 21, in verse 16, Christ refers to family again. Christ could no longer teach his family. They were stubborn. They, they wouldn't listen. It says they did not believe in him. He wouldn't teach those in his hometown. So we, he would teach his disciples about what it meant to follow him. And in Luke 21... It says this in verse 12, referring to the, the impending fall of, of the Jewish temple worship. Verse 12, but before all these, they shall lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and into prisons, being brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. And it shall turn to you for a testimony. Settle it therefore in your hearts not to meditate before what ye shall answer. I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which all your adversaries shall not be able to gainsay nor resist. And ye shall be betrayed by both parents and brethren and kinsfolks and friends. And some of you shall they cause to be put to death. Ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. And even at, at his death, only his mother was there of kin. No, no Joses, no Judah, no Simon. 
and no James. And that brings us to a key point, brothers and sisters, young people. Because family is defined by being hearers and doers of the word, according to the Lord Jesus. And as a result, the lesson would be that spiritual family must come before natural family. It's so easy, isn't it, to allow natural family to hinder our understanding of God's truth and how we act upon it. But this was not the case for the Lord Jesus. He was resolute, resolved to carry out his Father's will. Now, if this is where we've left James, at a, at a place completely different from his brother, the Lord Jesus, what do you think could change the life of James? How would he change in another direction? It would have to be something in a most dramatic fashion, wouldn't it? Surely after so many years of teaching and miracles, that would have converted James. But no, he was so hardened and entrenched in the law of Moses, only the greatest proof could be used to open his eyes to the truth. And this proof did come. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians and chapter 15. Paul is telling the Corinthians of the importance to understand that the resurrection was real. And in verse 3, he says, For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried. And that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain until this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James. James, the Lord's brother. James, the son of Zebedee, was, was dead. It was James, the Lord's brother, that is identified here. In fact, that word seen in verse 7 is often translated as appear. It's almost as if Christ deliberately made an appearance to James. James, the Lord's brother. Just imagine what that would have been like. James completely hardened by the years leading up to this moment. Not believing in Christ. Not believing that Christ would die and be resurrected again. And you can imagine James falling to the ground Truly thou art the Son of God. Incredible. And it would have been an incredible moment as they embraced each other. 
And James realized that Christ wasn't just his brother, but that Christ was his savior. James was converted, and so was his family. Turn with me to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. The Lord Jesus had ascended into heaven. And in Acts chapter 1, in verse 12, it says, Then returned they unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they were come in, they went up into an upper room where abode both Peter and James and John and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Elphias and Simon Zelotes and Judas the brother of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brethren. What an absolute contrast, brothers and sisters, young people, to Matthew chapter 12, where his mother and his brother, brothers stood without, it said. Now his mother and his brethren are there with one accord, no longer standing without. Marvelous. And this brings us to another key point. Because James, the brother of Christ, was converted based on his belief of the resurrection and became part of the body of Christ. And the lesson just might be that nothing is too big for God to forgive. Of all the people, that shouldn't have gone astray, surely it would have been the family of Christ who, who witnessed his upbringing, who heard his teachings, who saw his miracles. But it was James and his family that was converted. Yes, we know that if somebody turns their back on God, that the sacrifice of Christ is not for them. But if James, the brother of Christ, can be converted and forgiven, so can all of us if we turn humbly to our God. So why did Christ make a special appearance to James? Why is he specifically mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15? You know, the result of, of Christ's resurrection would have stirred up monumental preaching efforts. And believers would multiply at an astonishing rate, and we can trace through that in, in the book of Acts. 120 members there in verse 15 of Acts 1. And then by chapter 2, there's 3,000 souls. And then by chapter 4, there's 5,000. And in chapter Five again, it says there are multitudes of men and women. In chapter 6, the number of disciples was multiplied. Again in chapter 6, the disciples multiplied exceedingly. 
And in chapter 9, verse 31, they multiplied it, and the Jerusalem Ecclesia was exploding. And it primarily consisted of Jewish converts who would have been steeped in Jewish practices and customs. And who better to shepherd the Ecclesia than James, the Lord's brother? Now, James, the Lord's brother, occurs a, a number of other times in, in Scripture. He occurs in 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 5. And the fact that Paul uses his name there, James as an example, shows that it's likely he was a leader. He was listed with Peter, who we also know was a leader. James is listed in Acts chapter 12 and verse 17. He was singled out as the individual to receive the news of how by God's power, Peter was released from prison. In Galatians chapter 1 and 2, James, the Lord's, James is called the Lord's brother. He was called a, a pillar of the ecclesia. He was somebody that gave the right hand of fellowship. And finally, he was also used as an authority figure, although it suggested his name and authority was misused in the context of Galatians chapter 2. But all of these mentions denote his authority in the Jerusalem Ecclesia. And the same in Acts chapter 21 and verse 18. He was mentioned by name and individually acknowledged separately from the elders of the Jerusalem Ecclesia. Perhaps at the time of Acts 21, he was acting as a, a type of recording brother. But the greatest contribution he made was when the Ecclesia was scattered abroad, persecuted at the, the hands of those in opposition to Christ, just as he once was. A time when James, the son of Zebedee, was killed with the sword, a prominent brother. A time when others were taken into prison. A time when the persecution was so great, the ecclesia was in distress and running for their lives. A time when members were swinging from legalism to a dead faith. A time when members were pressured to adhere to Judaistic ways and denounce their faith. And it was at this time that James penned what we know as the Epistle of James, a forthright yet compassionate book, a book full of practical advice yet enriched with dozens and dozens of scriptural quotes from the law and from Christ, a letter that saves, a letter that understood Christ's teaching. Turn with me to James chapter 1 in the very first verse. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see what it doesn't say there is, James, the Lord's brother. James doesn't boast of his position as a brother of Christ. 
he recognizes, recognizes that he is the servant of Christ. He understood the words, my brethren are those that hear the word of God and do it. And James was ready to be that servant. In fact, all the way through James chapter 1 through 5, he uses this phrase, my brethren. My brethren, you see there in verse 2, my brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into divers temptations. And that brings us to another key point. James called himself a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ when he could have said he was the brother of Christ. And the lesson? We should not claim to be above others based on our family connections or based on some natural status in this life. Our status before our God is that of servanthood. James himself says we can only be exalted when brought low. And so James speaks of trial. He admonishes admonishes the people about the wonders of the word of God and how we must flee lust. He teaches about pure religion. He exhorts about partiality. He encourages regarding judgment and mercy. He warns about the use of the tongue. He tells them to resist the devil, to draw nigh to God. He speaks about the precious and the short time we have in this life, that it's a vapor, and that the very life we all have is a gift. And it's only because God wills it. Turn with me to James chapter 5. You know, historians say that James was called James the Just, that he alone was able to go to the temple, that it was James that was found to be kneeling on his knees, begging forgiveness for the people so that the skin of his knees became rough like that of a camel's by reason of his constantly bending the knee in adoration to God and begging forgiveness for the people. And in James chapter 5 and verse 6, who does he call just? James knew that this letter would get into the hands of those persecuting the ecclesia. And James says to them, ye have condemned and killed the just, and he doth not resist you. The just. That's Dikaios. James said, you persecutors have killed the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the just one. And James' measure of what it was to be righteous and just was now measured up to the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ was the mark of what it meant to be just. James was no longer bound by the law which kills. 
but about the principles of Christ which provide life. He was looking to say, and that's how James ends his letter. Look at verse 19. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. Jesus came and was born in this world to save the people from their sins. And his brethren did not believe him. Here James ends his epistle by looking to be somebody that saves, that hides a multitude of sins. That was the spirit of this man as he as he fought and he wrestled and he admonished and he encouraged the Jerusalem ecclesia that they too might be part of that spiritual and divine family James is spoken of by a number of historians Eusebius quotes from a number of Historians, Hegesippus, Josephus, and Clement of Alexandria, and has this to say. The scribes and the Pharisees one time came to James for help in putting down the Christian beliefs. And it says that the scribes and Pharisees, they came in this group to James and said, we entreat thee, James, restrain the people. They've gone astray in their opinions about Jesus as if he were the Christ. We entreat thee to persuade all who have come hither for the day of Passover concerning Jesus. For we all listen to thy persuasion, since we, as well as all the people, bear thee testimony that thou, James, art just, and you don't show partiality. Do thou therefore persuade the people not to entertain erroneous opinions concerning Jesus. For all the people, and we also, listen to thy persuasion. Take thy stand, then, James, upon the summit of the temple, that from the elevated spot thou mayest be clearly seen in thy words, plainly and audible to all of the people. For in order to attend the Passover, all tribes have congregated together, some of the Gentiles also. And the question is, would James acquiesce to his past life? Would he acquiesce to the scribes and Pharisees? Well, James agreed to come to the Temple Mount. But to the scribes and the Pharisees' dismay, James boldly testified that Christ himself sitteth in heaven at the right hand of the great power, it says. And the scribes and Pharisees said to themselves, we have not done well in procuring this testimony to Jesus. Let us go up, throw him down, that they may be afraid and not believe him. Believe him. And accordingly, the scribes and the Pharisees threw down, it says, the just man and began to stone him but he wasn't killed by the fall. And instead he turned and kneeled down 
and said, I beseech thee, Lord God our Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And while they were there stoning him to death, one of the priests, the sons of Rechab, the son of Rechabim, to whom testimony is borne by Jeremiah the prophet, began to cry aloud, saying, Cease! What do ye? The just man is praying for us. But one among them, one of the fullers, took the staff with which he was accustomed to wring out the garments he died and hurled it at the head of the just man. And so he suffered martyrdom. And they buried him on the spot, it says. And the pillar erected to his memory still remains close by the temple. This man was a true witness to both Jews and Greeks that Jesus is the Christ.